Take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. John chapter 18. <clears throat> this has been a dark night for Jesus and his 11 disciples. Uh, in chapter 13, Jesus ate the Passover meal with them, the Lord's Supper. And he begins to drop some pretty heavy bombs on them. He says one of them will betray him. He says another will deny him. He says all will abandon him. And the most heartbreaking thing is that he tells them that he will go away. He will die. And so the disciples at this point, they are just at their breaking point emotionally. Seems like all is lost. The mission is a failure. The thi- things are completely and totally out of control and have gotten out of hand. And for all intents and purposes, it seems like it is all over. But in chapters 14 through 16, we've looked at this for the past couple of months now. In those chapters, Jesus gives them teaching and instruction meant to bring refreshment to their troubled hearts, followed by a time of prayer for them in chapter 17. And how wise it was for Jesus to spend this special time with them, because Jesus knows that the darkness deepens in chapter 18, and the forces of evil are coming together to pounce on all of them. Indeed, on this night, the forces of darkness seem to be stronger than ever before. But it is in the deepest darkness that the glorious light of Christ shines and burns brighter than ever. And my prayer for you, and I've been praying this for you throughout the week as we've been coming up to this Sunday today, my prayer for you is that in exploring this text, you would see and savor more clearly, and behold more clearly, and enjoy more fervently the glory of Christ compared to when you first entered this building this morning. That's a pretty lofty goal and a lofty prayer, so let's see how God responds to it. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. John chapter 18. And we're going to start at verse 1 and read on down through verse 11. The Word of the Lord says, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with His disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. 
Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we commit these next few moments to you, and we ask that you would illuminate the text before us so that we may see and savor Jesus even more. I have not the power to help anybody to do that, but you do, and you are in our midst this morning, and we thank you for that, and we rely on your sovereign grace this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Jesus was a complete, absolute failure. That was the conclusion of the late liberal German theologian Albert Schweitzer, who wrote, and I quote, Jesus lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. It refuses to turn, and He throws Himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes Him. The wheel rolls onward in the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who is strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. That is his victory and his reign. To Schweitzer and many others, the betrayal, the arrest, the murder of Jesus was a sad tragedy. It was an accident. It was a failure. Some believe Jesus was the victim of his own delusions of grandeur, and in the end, Jesus bit off more than he could chew. Things got out of control. Things went terribly wrong, and instead of finding success, he finds himself hanging on the cross, having never intended to go there. His last moments, a sad and depressing irony, crushed by the unstoppable wheel of history that refused to bend to his dreams of messiahship. That's the gospel according to Schweitzer. That's the gospel according to liberal theology. And at the centerpiece of this gospel is a Jesus who is deluded, discouraged, despairing, and ultimately defeated. But this morning, our text is not the gospel according to Albert Schweitzer, but the gospel according to John. And unlike Schweitzer, John was a man who actually knew Jesus and was in his inner circle. Indeed, in the very first chapter of his book, John says this. He says, we have beheld his glory. He was a personal eyewitness to the divine glory of Jesus Christ. But that begs the question, what is so glorious about the last few hours of Jesus' life? You think about it. Could there be anything more inglorious more debasing, more shameful, more humiliating than to be betrayed by a friend, arrested like a common criminal, captured and bound, led away into the night to be beaten and brutalized and rejected by your own people and eventually crucified. 
And so on the surface, it seems like Schweitzer and his ilk are right. But nevertheless, the Apostle John stubbornly persists, we have seen His glory. And John later on, near the end of the book, says that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And my goal as your pastor this morning, in complete and utter dependence on the Holy Spirit, is to help you to see Jesus' glory in John 18. That you will see that Jesus is not a helpless victim, but a majestic victor. And that for those of you who are not Christians, that you will see and you will believe and that you will have life in His name. In our text today, we witness at least four manifestations, four examples, four displays of the glory of Christ And the first one that I want us to consider is the sovereign control of Christ. The sovereign control of Christ. Look with me at verse 1. When Jesus has spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which He and His disciples entered. Now, the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus would spend all day teaching in the temple complex, and then at night He would retire to this place. Verse 2. It says, now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So you see what's going on here? Jesus goes to this garden, and Judas knew where it was. And more significantly, Jesus knows that Judas knows this. And Jesus knows something else, that Judas has already betrayed him. We know that because in chapter 13, during the Last Supper, Jesus Himself sends Judas out into the night to complete His dark and traitorous mission. So, why would Jesus go to the garden if He knows Judas will come there to carry out His treachery? If Jesus knew He was going to get into this mess, why did He go there in the first place? Jesus went there because He wanted to be found. And he knew that this would be the first place Judas would go uh, with, with soldiers to find him. In other words, Jesus is making it easy for his enemies to arrest him. Now, does this sound like the Jesus of liberal theology to you? A helpless victim who suddenly got caught? Are we to read this and just sadly shake our heads? Poor, pathetic Jesus. They ambushed him. They caught him. They got him this time. Certainly not. Consider this. After Jesus had dismissed Judas earlier that night, Jesus would have had plenty of time to fake out all of his enemies and slip quietly out of town under the radar, far away from those who sought to capture him. But he doesn't do that. Jesus does the exact opposite. He doesn't avoid confrontation. He actually forces it. Jesus isn't the victim of circumstance here. He is actually controlling the circumstances. So here's Jesus, and here are the disciples in this garden, and here comes Judas right on time. And he's not alone. Look at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. The uh, Greek word for a band of soldiers is the word spera. 
these would have been a, a Roman soldiers, and it would have been a large amount of Roman soldiers. Some say um, maybe a couple of hundred soldiers. Some say it could have been uh, as much as 600 soldiers. But regardless of the exact amount, uh, the point here is that we have a lot of well-trained, battle-hardened, unsympathetic Roman soldiers, and they are coming for Jesus. Think about it. Why so many? Why so many soldiers for one man and 11 disciples? They were probably expecting trouble and resistance. The Romans had had to deal with revolutionaries before, Jewish revolutionaries before, false messiahs who made bold calls to arms to overthrow imperial occupation. And let's not forget the backdrop of this moment. I know it's been months since we've looked at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but in the actual timeline, it's actually less than a week ago. It was less than a week ago, just several days before the events of this night, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, and He is greeted by an enthusiastically zealous crowd waving palm branches in the air. Remember, we talked about this, the palm branch being a sign of Jewish nationalism and victory over foreign oppression. They're waving these palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna, which means save now. And they're declaring Jesus, not Caesar, to be the king of Israel. So the Romans have no idea what kind of trouble they may face if they show up to arrest one whom so many had pledged to be their king. But it's not just upwards of hundreds of Roman soldiers that show up. Look again at verse 3, and you'll also see uh, that some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, of course, were the main religious leaders of the Jews, and the chief priest, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the officers from the chief priest were like the, the temple police. Now, this is probably one of the most unusual groups of people ever assembled. Who would have thought that Jews and Roman legionnaires would be marching side by side? Each of these groups despises the other. Each of them hates one another. And the icing on the cake is that they're being led by one of Jesus' own disciples. Surely read in the larger context of John's gospel, it's no stretch to see that this group is representative of the world. In his book, John constantly makes distinctions between Jesus' true disciples and the world that hates Jesus and hates God the Father. And here we have Jews and Gentiles, pagan polytheistic Romans and legalistic monotheistic Hebrews, and let's throw in one false disciple for good measure, and here they are all together. This is ironic when you think about it in light of last week's sermon text. We were in John 17 last week where Jesus was praying for the unity of the church. And here in John 18, we see an incredible display of unity. It's a satanic unity. These groups who would under normal circumstances be enemies with one another, they find a common enemy in Jesus. And for the moment, their differences are set aside. And so here is the world united in their unyielding opposition to Christ, very reminiscent of what we read about in Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is indeed the state of the world today. The world at large, while full of hatred and division towards itself, comes together in total agreement regarding Jesus. 
The world is not interested in submitting to Jesus. The world is not interested in being accountable to the one true God. And where the gospel is preached, there is resistance and hostility. And here, in a little garden, 2,000 years ago, we see this hostility represented in this motley band of Jesus haters, ready to do away with him. Now, the Scripture says here that this band shows up with torches and lanterns and weapons. Now, it's interesting that John gives us that little detail about their equipment. It seems totally unnecessary to the story, but, but John focuses on all of this gear that they have. So, I guess we will too, a little bit. What's interesting is that it was Passover. There would have been a, a full moon, a bright, well-lighted evening along the Judean hillside, and yet it seems these men were expecting Jesus to be like any other wanted man, like any other fugitive. They thought that Jesus would, would bolt as soon as he saw them hiding in some hole or cave, and so they come with all these torches, all this lighting prepared for an all-night manhunt on the mountainside. But that's not what happens. Verse 4, then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Jesus Jesus knew all that would happen. Jesus is not ambushed. He is not surprised. He is not a victim. And not only that, text says he comes forward. Here were the soldiers ready for an all-night manhunt in dark places, and Jesus emerges from the darkness bold and confident and courageous. He's not cowering in some hole. He's not hiding in some cave. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He comes forward. And he puts himself between his disciples and the soldiers, much like a a shepherd would place himself between the sheep and a pack of bloodthirsty wolves. Friends, Jesus here is calm, and he is confident, and he is in total 100% control of the situation. They come to confront Jesus. Jesus comes forward and confronts them. He confronts his enemies head on. Verse 4, Jesus asked them, whom do you seek? Which leads me to my next observation of Christ's glory. We're going to see the overwhelming power of Christ. Look at verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, let's not let that pass us by. This is so sad, and it is so tragic. We have Judas, who just hours ago ate a Passover meal with Jesus. Judas, who just hours ago was served by Jesus when Jesus got on his knees and washed the grimy feet of Judas. This same Judas, verse 5 says, was standing with them, with the enemies of Christ. You see, the hidden hypocrisy in Judas's heart was now visible for all to see. He had officially and visibly switched sides. And how horrifying is the story of Judas when you think about it? Judas preached the gospel. Judas gave up years of his life to follow Christ. Judas outwardly appeared to be very righteous. As a matter of fact, people thought he was so trustworthy that he was left in charge of the money bag for the ministry. Judas was given divine power to perform miracles and cast out demons. Judas sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to the very words of God pour out of his mouth. And now Judas stands with the enemies of Jesus. 
And oh, how grave of a warning that should be to the readers today. That one who had such a close association with Jesus and Jesus' people would prove to be false. And Judas' story plays out over and over and over again in churches all the time. You've got people who were raised in church, people who participate in ministry, people who preach the gospel, people who say all the right things, and they talk a good religious game, and yet in their hearts they have zero love for Jesus. They love money. They love looking good. They love prestige. They love what Jesus might get for them. And Jesus merely then becomes a means to an end and not the end. That's exactly what happened to Judas. Judas loved money. And Judas used Jesus to get money. He stole from the money bag. He likely thought that Jesus was his ticket to riches if Jesus was indeed the Messiah who would overthrow the Romans and establish a new order. But when Jesus turns out to be not that kind of Messiah, when Jesus talks about dying, Judas could see the writing on the wall, and this path to riches is a dead end for him. Jesus is good for nothing for him. Jesus has outlived his usefulness to Judas, and so Judas cashes in his chips, and he sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. You see, when Jesus is just a means to an end, and that's how many people use Jesus today, when Jesus is just a means to an end for you, and he actually is not the end, you will eventually be seen as exposed and standing with Jesus' enemies. And it will most likely happen when Jesus doesn't give you what you really want, the thing that you really want more than Jesus, the thing that you're using Jesus to get. And when that happens, then you cash in your chips and you sell out Jesus and join Judas in a long line of false disciples. I've seen it time and again, and it crushes my heart. Last week, I told you that there are a few things that break my heart more than when Christians mistreat other Christians and fail to express the unity that they have in Christ. Well, this other thing here would be right up there with that as far as the things that go that wound me the most as a pastor. When a disciple proves to be fake, cashing his or her chips in and stabbing Jesus in the back because they don't believe, they don't believe that the beauty and worth And treasure of Jesus is superior to whatever else they wanted. And it cuts me to my soul and it decimates my heart every time. Friend, if you are here this morning and you are on the path of Judas, if you are into Jesus simply to use Jesus to get something that you think is better than Jesus, then I plead with you this morning to turn from that path. The path of Judas is a dead end. It will lead to death. And so I urge you, I say this out of love to you, to reconsider. And I pray that God would convict you of your sin, open your eyes, and bring you to the truth, the truth that having Jesus is superior than possessing anything else in the world. He is a superior God, a superior treasure, a superior satisfaction. Don't sell Jesus out for trinkets. 
Go for broke. Go for the real treasure. Go for the one who is more glorious than anything else in the cosmos. Seek him, and you will never, ever regret it. So turn before it's too late. It's too late for Judas. There's no going back for him. And something's about to happen here that will give him a hint of the foolish, suicidal choice that he has made. Look at verse 6. And Jesus said to them, I am he. They drew back and fell to the ground. (laughs) Now, what in the world is happening there? I wonder what's going through your heads as you're reading that text. How would you explain that? I've heard some pretty ridiculous explanations. It has actually been suggested by some with a straight face that what really happened was that just somebody in front fell backwards. And like dominoes, you guessed it, they're all falling down the hillside, all 500 of them, or however many of this. Folks, these are tough, battle-hardened Roman soldiers. They're they're trained, they're disciplined, they know how to stand in formation. You can't be a successful soldier if you're clumsy. So what happened? I've got an idea. In the original Greek text, it says, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And Jesus then responds with the Greek words, ego eimi, which translated literally simply means, I am which seems in this moment, in light of what's happening in John 18, in light of the response of these soldiers, that that phrase, ego me here, is communicating more than simply, it's me. We get some clues about the double meaning of ego me elsewhere in John's gospel, more explicitly uh, in John chapter 8, uh, where Jesus does not say to his enemies, before Abraham was, I was... But before Abraham was, I am. Ego, me. Jesus doesn't have bad grammar, folks. Jesus instead is taking upon himself the very name of God, the name that was revealed in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses asked God, when the people ask me your name, what should I tell them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am is the very name of God himself. So in John chapter 8, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he is disclosing his very deity, his very godhood to the people, which is why the Jewish leaders immediately want to kill him after he dares do such a thing, because such a claim is blasphemous, which it is unless it's true. Whom do you seek, he asks. Jesus of Nazareth, they say. And Jesus turns to them and says, I am. And immediately at the sound of his great name, upon his divine self-disclosure, we witness and they experience a display of raw, irresistible, overwhelming power, and they all fall down. Jesus says, Ego, Amy, and the result is hundreds of battle hardened, tough, 
experienced Roman soldiers, some of the best warriors, some of the most well-trained, some of the toughest men in the world, part of an army that has conquered the world, and in it, an army that has caused nations to tremble and fall, and now they find themselves overwhelmed and conquered and laid flat on their backs by the utterance of a couple of tiny words from the lips of Jesus. What authority, what fearsome power contained in the Word of Jesus because it is the very Word of God. What Jesus does here is terrifying, but it is also gracious. It's gracious when you understand that what was put on display in that garden in that moment was just an infinitesimal sliver of Jesus' power. He could have unleashed a lot more on them than that. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of the Lord's zeal to defend his people by bringing terrible judgment on his enemies, says that he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Jesus Christ could have easily annihilated every soldier, every weapon, every piece of armor just by speaking. Because Scripture says that this man in the garden is no ordinary man. Instead, it says he is the radiance of the glory of God, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The tiniest atom, the largest sun, the cells in your own body, all of it upheld by His Word. His Word keeps you alive. His Word keeps the planets from colliding. And in a garden 2,000 years ago, He said, Ego, Amy, and boom! They all went down. It's as if Jesus' divinity had been veiled by His humanity, but suddenly, in a moment, just for a second, Jesus flexed. Jesus, for a millisecond, uncloaked His deity and gave us the quickest glimpse of who it was they were really dealing with. They all went down, including Judas, traitorous, murderous, satanically possessed Judas. Oh, how I would love to know what was running through the mind of Judas as he struggled to pull himself up off the ground after being flattened. Who is in control here? Who is in charge here? Who is arresting whom? Friends, we need to understand that Jesus wasn't dragged to the cross kicking and screaming. Jesus actually sought out the cross. It was the reason he came. Scripture says this in John chapter 10, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus here is not a helpless victim. He is not out of control. He is the only one in that garden that is in total and absolute control. So we have the sovereign control of Christ, we see the overwhelming power of Christ, but I also want us to consider the tender care of Christ. Verse 7, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now Jesus isn't repeating the question for his own sake. 
He's asking it, I think, for the sake of his disciples. You see, by repeating the question, Jesus has cleverly gotten the guards to say twice that their business is with Jesus and Jesus alone, not these disciples. That's why Jesus replies in verse 8. He says, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus is not thinking about his own safety in this moment. He is thinking about the safety of his men. And notice that Jesus isn't timidly asking these soldiers to let them go. Would you please, good, kind sirs, maybe if you could be so gracious enough, could you please, pretty please, let them go? He's not, he's not doing that. In the original text, and it is a, it's an imperative. It's a command. Let them go. Now again, is this what a victim does? Does a victim make commands? Is a victim in a position to demand anything? Can somebody who is losing control of the situation effectively act like this? Victims beg for their lives. Kings command and give orders and say, this is how it is. This is how it's going to be. If you want me, you've got me. Now let them go. Verse 9. This was to fulfill the one word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now that commentary in verse 9 actually takes us back to the last chapter, to chapter 17, where Jesus is praying and he says, while I was with them, while I was with the disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. A couple of weeks ago, we examined verse 12, and we concluded that this keeping, this guarding of Jesus has to do with keeping and guarding them spiritually. Not losing them means keeping them saved. Now, what's interesting, though, is that here in John 18, the physical protection of the disciples is said to be a fulfillment of Jesus' words. But if Jesus' words in John 17 talk about the spiritual, eternal security of His disciples that they won't be spiritually lost, how can John 18, which shows us Jesus guarding their physical security, be a fulfillment of that? Well, I take, take it to mean that Jesus, uh, His physical protection for the disciples in that moment was also a means of guarding them spiritually. Think about it this way. How much faith do the disciples have at this point? Do they have great faith or do they have weak faith? They had a very weak and volatile faith. They are really struggling right now. And you can bet that they are not ready for torture. They aren't ready for persecution. They will be after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them and emboldens them. But we're not there yet. We're in the garden during one of the lowest moments of the disciples' lives, emotionally and mentally and spiritually. If they are rounded up with Jesus in this moment, if they are tortured, if they are persecuted, I don't think that they would make it. I think what little faith they had would have crumbled as they were in the hands of their enemies. And so Jesus makes sure that they are not arrested. John Calvin, um, commenting on this passage, notes that Christ, in sparing them for a time, made provision for their eternal salvation. It reminds me of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Jesus is protecting the disciples from being tempted beyond their ability. Even in this moment, as Jesus faces the greatest trial of His life, Jesus is being a good and faithful shepherd to them. He knows what they are up for, and he knows what they are not up for. And this should give you great encouragement in your own life. Some of you are experiencing great temptation, a great testing of your faith, and you feel like your faith is too weak to handle it. You don't know if you can make it. Folks, Jesus knows the measure of your faith, and he knows what your faith can and cannot handle, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. If you are concerned about your weak faith, guess what? Jesus is concerned about it too, more than you are. And He won't lose you or let you go, but He will guard you and keep you. Jesus is standing between hundreds of soldiers and His disciples as a shepherd stands between sheep and wolves, and He is saying to them, you will not touch them. You will let them go. And Jesus' physical protection of them is illustrative of His spiritual protection over you. Jesus stands between you and the devil, the great enemy of your soul, and Jesus declares, you will not touch him. You will not touch her. This one is mine forever under my watchful eye and protection. And so if you're one of Christ's sheep, know that Jesus the Good Shepherd has brought you into his fold. You will never be lost. He will prevent anything from happening in your life that would forever ruin your faith. Jesus gives these comforting words in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And so we sing, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost, His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. So in the garden, Jesus is not a victim. He is not defeated. He's not out of control. Instead, Jesus is in charge. He is victorious, he is unstoppable, and he is committed to guaranteeing the safety of his own. So we see the sovereign control of Christ. We see the overwhelming power of Christ. We see the tender care of Christ. And finally, we will consider the bitter cup of Christ. And yes, his glory is on display here as well. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Either Peter is a better fisherman than a fighter, or he is one of the greatest swordsmen who have ever lived, striking with such precision that he's able to take off an ear and nothing else, like a Jewish Zorro. This guy's amazing. Now, I'm inclined to believe that Peter actually should stick with fishing. Nobody tries to cut off somebody's ear in battle. Peter was obviously going for something else. I think he was going for Malchus's head. He was trying to kill him. 
And obviously, Peter missed. Now, why did Peter attack? Because he's Peter. He's Peter. If you know your Bibles well, you know Peter. You know him well. He is emotional. He is impetuous. He is impulsive. He is ready, fire, aim. Some of you, it took a second to get that. That's the kind of guy he is. And Peter is likely emboldened in this moment. He just witnessed Jesus speaking two little words, and he flattens the whole group of soldiers. And so Peter's drawing his sword thinking, this is it. We're getting out of here. I'm going to get this thing going right now, and I'm going to be the leader of this rescue mission. And if we start getting into trouble, Jesus can just do that little I am thing again and wipe them all out. This is awesome. I got a sword. He's got superpowers. We're getting out of here. And with one blow, Peter, thinking that he is fighting for Jesus, is now fighting against God and against God's purposes. Jesus doesn't want to be rescued. And Peter misses the point. And because of his foolishness, things could have got very bad, very fast, as Malchus is on the ground writhing in pain, and as the chilling sound of hundreds of Roman swords being unsheathed echoed in the night, moonbeams glistening off of cold iron. But once again, Jesus is in control, and Jesus is in charge. We learn from the Gospel of Luke that Jesus heals Malchus. It's a simple thing for Jesus, who spoke the universe into existence. It's pretty simple for him to recreate an ear. And as quickly as Peter starts a conflict, Jesus quenches it. Why? He says to Peter, verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He, he, he may have said it with a little bit more gusto than that. This is a pretty tense moment. I'm sure Jesus is not happy with what Peter has just done. Put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me? And what does Jesus mean there? What what was Jesus talking about? In the Old Testament, God's cup was a common reference, talking about God's holy wrath. And so you've got scriptures like in Psalm 75, I'd say, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. You see, Jesus' mission was not to come and start a political revolution, and Jesus' mission was not to come and simply be a good teacher and pass on some nice little moral lessons to be like a glorified Aesop with cute little fables that give us little tips for life. No, no, no. The whole point, the whole point of all of this is for Jesus to take that cup, the cup of God's wrath meant to be poured out on every human being who has ever lived and who ever will live because we're all sinners and we all deserve that wrath. And and if we are going to be saved from that wrath, if we're going to be saved, somebody's got to drink that cup. Because sin must be paid for and dealt with or else God is not just. He's not a God of justice if it doesn't happen. And so Jesus has to come to take the bitter, foul, 
disgusting, horrible cup that you're supposed to drink, He comes and He takes it and drains it down to the dregs. And the place where that cup would be drained is on the cross, where the world's sin would be placed on Jesus and the full, undiluted wrath of God would be swallowed up by Christ. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that moments before those soldiers came, that Jesus in that very same garden, a garden that Matthew tells us was called Gethsemane, He was there praying to the Father, and He prayed, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. If there's another way, I don't want to drink it. Jesus recoils at the possibility of the disgusting and foul sin of the world being put on Him, and He recoils at the prospect of being relationally separated from the Father, the one whom Jesus has been so close to and so intimate to, -to face-to-face with from eternity past. His Father will now turn His beautiful face away from Jesus, and Jesus now will experience God in His wrath, a wrath that you and I should get in hell. And Jesus struggles and He wrestles in prayer, and Jesus prevails. And so, we are told that in that garden, in the Gospel of Matthew, that He fell on His face and He prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. You see, my friends, Jesus' victory began before the events of John chapter 18. Jesus' victory was established in Matthew chapter 26 where Jesus resolves Himself to continue to the cross because of His love for the Father and His love for you. As much as Jesus dreads the bitter cup of God's wrath, He doesn't want you to drink it. And so He resolves to drink it and drain every drop so that you don't have to. And so by the time you get to John 18, guess what? It's over. Jesus has already won. Jesus has chosen His path, and nothing will deter Him from that. Not even Peter's misguided attempts at a rescue. What Peter doesn't realize is that Jesus doesn't need to be rescued. Peter needs to be rescued. Jesus has just guaranteed their temporary physical security. But now Jesus has to go to the cross to guarantee their eternal spiritual security. Because if Jesus doesn't make it to the cross, Peter goes to hell forever drinking the cup of God's wrath, along with all the rest of us. And this explains why when Peter starts trying to play action hero, Jesus addresses him with righteous indignation, saying, put your sword away. Stop it, Peter. You don't know what you're doing, Peter. This is going to make things worse, Peter. Peter, this will destroy everything that I've come for. If you save me, you go to hell. So put that sword away. Let me save you by going to hell for you on the cross. And so he says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Folks, is not Christ glorious in this story? Is he? Is he not magnificent? How different is the true Christ of the Gospel of John compared to the figment of Albert Schweitzer's imagination? Not deluded, not discouraged, not despairing, and not defeated, 
but all-knowing, all-courageous, all-powerful, and all-victorious. This is your Christ. This is your God. Will you bend the knee to this sovereign king? Will you receive him by faith this morning so that you don't have to drink the cup of God's wrath yourself? If you're here this morning and you're already a believer, the lesson for us is that even when we can't see God's hand, we should trust his plan. Peter and the disciples judged their circumstances by what they could perceive with their eyes. Things looked really bad. Things looked like they were going down the tubes. And yet, if only they had listened carefully to what Jesus had been teaching them those three years. Nothing that's happening in this moment isn't anything that Jesus has already told them about. But they are determining reality based on what they can perceive and understand and based on their emotions and feelings instead of on what the Word of God actually says. And we get into so much trouble when that happens. If only they would have heeded what the Old Testament had taught them about God's plan for Christ, they would have not have despaired as they did. And they would have saved themselves so much misery and heartache if they just would have listened, if they just would have believed. We too would spare ourselves so much heartache and so much angst if we would just hear, listen, receive, and believe. If we could just listen and believe what God says in His Word, that even when we can't see His hand, we can always trust in His plan. Even when we don't know what Jesus is doing, He knows what He is doing. And as the Good Shepherd, what He is doing is always guarding and protecting and fighting for and loving His precious sheep. That's your God. Hope in Him. Let's pray.